Please listen carefully. Hi, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Hooked on Science, a show where we'll dive into cool research that you should know about. Today, I'm joined by Ilsa Renner, who is a PhD candidate in the horticulture department at the University of Minnesota. Ilsa, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me. How did you know that you wanted to be a scientist when you were younger? So when I was, you know, in elementary and middle school, I absolutely hated science. We always had to fill out these forms after having some science classes or units. And it was always things like, how did you feel about this? Excited, whatever. My answer was always bored. So I hated it. I don't know what changed exactly. I think a lot of it was I really liked math and I realized how much statistics and science play together, and I think having really good professors who were into statistics and also into plant science helped me merge those things. And yeah, I guess when I finally got to college and grew up a little bit, I started realizing how fun biology was. When you became interested in biology, were you immediately interested in plants, or did you have an interest in human biology instead? I think I've always been a little bit geared towards going to what other people aren't interested in. And I think a lot of times in undergrad, people are more interested in human biology. But um, no, I just, I really liked plants. I liked how they could really interact with the environment in ways that we're not used to because we're not plants. We can move around and plants can't. And I thought just learning about a lot of those environmental interactions was really cool. How did all of that lead you to graduate school and pursuing a higher level degree from going to not liking science to many science degrees? Well, initially, I wanted to be faculty. And so I I think I just had that in my head, and I decided that's what I wanted to do for a job. I thought their career looked super awesome from a student's perspective. I think part of it was jumping on a boat of something that you're interested in and seeing where it takes you. So you and I are both in research-based graduate programs, which generally means we're not sitting in classes or taking exams. Our school doesn't look as much like a lot of people think college or higher degrees look like. Can you describe for me what your typical day looks like? Oh my gosh. I think the days in grad school, especially in a program like what we're in where we're doing research, is really maybe season-dependent, especially when we're thinking about agronomy or horticulture. But it definitely has gone through phases of being more in class to more analyzing data. Early on, a lot of my days kind of looked like having some time allocated to classes, some time allocated to just me delving into the research of the topics that I was going to be researching, and then sometime, you know, starting to kind of prepare what uh, a research project could look like. And then a couple of my summers were really heavy in field work. So I spent my Monday through Wednesday or Thursday most summers up there doing my research. I'd come back and conglomerate my data. And then after that, once I was done with field work, I moved on to doing more lab-based stuff, which I had a little more control over. And now most of my days look like taking all of my data, looking at it, thinking about it, <laughs> writing about it, doing a lot of thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, the schedule is is pretty fluid as far as, you know, what I want to do with my time, which is both good and bad. So as you worked through those early steps of your project when you're doing research on topics related to what you were interested in and developing your project, how did you go about developing that overarching goal of your project and what is that general goal? 
Yeah. So the reason why I picked the advisor that I have or was interested in working with him is because he works with nutrients and plants that are beneficial for humans. That's the intersection I wanted to work with. One of the compounds he works with is really heavily present in brassica plants. So these are things like <laughs> cabbage, kale, cauliflower. Everyone's favorite vegetables. Those kids love them. Yeah. Everyone loves them. So I, I knew the research would be about that, which is what I wanted to do, which is why I asked to be his student. And early on, what I, I did was I put together a little bit of like a review for myself of what controls these compounds that we're interested in, in terms of, you know, light, soil, things like that. And then kind of worked on narrowing down an area that was both feasible for me to study, but also an area that wasn't totally flushed out or that maybe a lot of questions were still surrounding. What were you looking to find or investigate? Sure. So the overarching goal of my research more broadly is to create these nutrient-focused production systems. So production systems are just essentially everything you put into growing a plant, from how you pick your seed to how you plow your fields to what time of day you pick your product. And so all of these things can impact different beneficial compounds that are in plants. And the overarching goal then is to come up with a uh, you know a set of strategies for growers so they can maximize whatever compound you know we're particularly interested in. So my project looks at light quality. You can think about it in terms of how much is there. So if, is it really bright in here or is it kind of a cloudy day or what colors are in the light that you see which it's kind of hard for us to see when a lot of times we look at light, it's just white, but it's actually made up of a ton of different colors. And so I look at some of those colors in there and see how they impact the plants. Do you want to talk a little bit more about those light compounds? What types of light are you looking for and why can't we see them? Sure. Yeah. So if we just think about UV light, we can't see that with our own eyes, but we can see blue all the way through red. And then after red is far red, and then we get infrared, which is heat and plants can't necessarily see every single color, as I see in quotations, but they do have these proteins on their leaves that detect certain wavelengths. So they can detect blue light, they can detect UV, they can detect the ratio of red to far red, and then change the metabolism accordingly. But I look mostly at the red and far red ratio because that comes in and hits a protein and that protein directs a lot of the metabolism in a plant. And so glucosinolates, which is the, the health compound that I'm interested in, are likely also interacting with this protein. What is it about these glucosinolates in these plants that is either beneficial or not beneficial to human health? Why should, why should we care about these compounds in our food? Glucosinolates are a, a class of chemical compounds produced in you know, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, all those things. And they are originally made in the plant for uh, defense, oftentimes against insects. But when humans eat these compounds, they have a biological effect on our cells in ways that prevent cancer, to, to keep it very simple. They can inhibit and kind of stop cancer progression in a lot of different pathways. And the really cool thing about the one glucosinolate that I look at, which is glucobrassicin, is that this particular glucosinolate, glucobrassicin, was discovered to prevent cancer here in the University of Minnesota. It's still being used for cancer prevention research. So for example, the Masonic Cancer Center, which is out of the University of Minnesota, uses it in their studies to see how much carcinogen is excreted when subjects consume Brussels sprouts and they know how much glucobrassicin is in those Brussels sprouts and they can see how much carcinogen get, then gets excreted into their urine. So we know that it does help with a lot of different aspects of preventing cancer development and progression. You're looking at, you know, the production side of this system, but obviously it sounds like there's some really cool end uses for the information that you're gathering. 
Is there any benefit to eating these plants versus taking a supplement of glucobrassican? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, plants have more than just one beneficial compound. So there's a couple reasons why you'd want to eat a whole plant versus take a supplement. One of them is there's obviously a ton of vitamins and minerals that are in cabbage and all these plants. Oftentimes these molecules work in tandem with other molecules that are also present in the plant. For instance, with glucosinolates, they actually are only bioactive when the plant gets broken apart and it comes in contact with another enzyme in there it's called myrosinase. And so myrosinase basically breaks apart the glucosinolate into these active compounds. And that's what you're getting the health benefit from rather than just the pure product itself. People eat whole products anyway. So if you can get more of these compounds into just you know a typical diet, it's just one less thing to think about. Definitely. So before we get a little bit further into your research project itself, we're just gonna take a break for a minute. Hi, Julia here. If this is your first episode, welcome. If it's not, welcome back. I've had a lot of fun recording with Ilsa, so I hope you're having just as much fun listening. We had some disturbances during our recording, so if you hear a door slamming in the background, That's because there was a door slamming in the background. I'm still learning the best places to record around campus because many of the buildings have walls made of cinder blocks. If you've ever been to a college campus, you have probably witnessed this phenomenon. And it does not make for optimal recording spaces. So I apologize for that and any echoes you may hear. I'm still working to find the best places to record so that I can provide you with the highest quality episodes possible. If you tuned into the trailer or the first episode, you've already heard this, but this podcast is part of my PhD. Eventually, I'll be comparing the effectiveness of traditional scientific communication methods, such as poster and PowerPoint presentations, with the podcast. But in the meantime, I would absolutely love it if you shared this with your friends, your family, or the person that delivers your mail. If you have any questions about today's episode, please feel free to send me an email at hookedonsciencepod at gmail.com. That is H-O-O-K-E-D-O-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-P-O-D at gmail.com. Or share a comment on one of the Hooked on Science social media pages, and I will do my best to get any questions you have answered. You can follow the pod on Facebook and Instagram at Hooked on Science Pod or on Twitter at Hooked on Science. And finally, please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars for cool science. We're back. Elsa, you have this information on cabbages and glucobrassican. How do you set up an experiment using this information? The first part of my research early on was this field work. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to understand how does the red to far red ratio impact this really important health compound in cabbage. So I was interested in cabbage because glucobrassican is really prevalent in cabbage. And so it's just a really good target vegetable. Is it higher than other brassicas? It's one of the highest. Brussels sprouts are probably the highest overall. And there's variation among all the different types of cultivars. People might not realize that it's not just red or green cabbage, but within the green cabbage, there's thousands of different cultivars. And at the store, you probably just buy red or green, but the the grower probably picked a certain variety for their location or something specific, maybe how fast it grows or, you know, what type of time of year it's growing, things like that. So all of those things, that genetic background can play a really big role in that overall nutrient profile of the plant. 
And for some people who may not know, can you just say what a cultivar is? Yeah. I think the way most people might understand cultivars, if they think about apples, I think this is a pretty good example. So things like Gala, Jazz, Honeycrisp, these are all different apple cultivars. They're all apples. They all look very similar. They're all red, but they all are a little bit different. And you can tell how they're different by their texture, maybe their taste, a little bit of color, things like that. So it's all the same species. It's just something about it is a little bit different. Thank you for explaining that. What does your experiment look like? Walk us through the setup of it. Yeah, so this this field experiment, what I did was I took a couple different cultivars of cabbage. One was a purple one, one of the many purple ones, and I had another one of the many green, and grew them in Grand Rapids under these different competition treatments. And so competition, the way I had it set up was just plant-to-plant competition. So I made these little fake weed communities around the cabbage. I just had them for different durations of time. And essentially what that does is the reason why red and far red light matters so much in plants is because it's a signal of competition. So red light and far red light in sunlight are present in about equal proportions. But once that light hits a leaf, the plant absorbs a lot of the red and transmits a lot of far red. So that means any light then that passes through is really high in far red and not in red. So that ratio changes and plants can detect that change in the ratio and say, oh my gosh, there's a plant next to me. I need to grow taller or change something about my metabolism. So maybe I release some more chemicals that make the other plant not grow as well, or I get taller to get more light. Essentially, that's kind of what competition is for plants and why that red to far red ratio matters in terms of competition. I set up my experiment looking at all these different competition treatments. And then throughout the season, I measured how the red to far red ratio was changing around the cabbage. So what that cabbage was seeing, essentially. At the end of the season, I measured glucobrassican concentrations in those harvested heads. So essentially what you'd be eating, you know, bite per bite, how much glucobrassican was there. So maybe this is a little bit off topic and not as much on your research, but when I think of a cabbage, it's just a, you know, a ball of leaves. So do you see differences in those glucobrassican compounds, like between the layers of cabbage, just because, you know, the outside outermost leaves are going to get more red light during the season than the inner ones? Yeah, that's a question that uh, I get asked by faculty committee members. So excellent <laughs> foresight. Yeah, it, it does. And what I found most recently, this is a different project. I didn't look at this for, for this one, but I did separate out outer leaves, kind of middle leaves, and then the core of cabbage heads. Hopefully a lot of the, the people listening have at one point in time chopped a cabbage in half and kind of seen like there's a really dense core. And then the leaves on the outside are a little bit looser, and then the ones in the middle are somewhere in between. And yeah, I've, I've definitely pulled those apart and analyzed them separately. Do you have any guesses as far as which one had more glucobrassican? That's a great question. I would say that the innermost leaves would, you know, have been first exposed to the red light before the outer ones. No, the outer ones would develop first. I have no idea. <laughs> it is very, it is confusing. Um, and sometimes it's hard to tell which part of the plant actually developed first because that head gets really compact. But what I found actually in a, a, across a bunch of different cultivars, the outer, the wrapper leaves that tend to be highest in glucobrassican, and then the middle leaves are a little bit less, and then the core is even less. And whether that's due to the fact that those wrapper leaves are getting, you know, a different quality of light, or if it has to do with the age of the leaf itself, I don't know. (laughs) But that's definitely a trend that I've seen across the board in, in a lot of what I've studied. Very interesting. So now that we've gone on this little cabbage side quest, let's go back to your experiment. So you planted these cabbages, you planted some weeds to have some competition with them for this light. So what did those weed treatments look like? Did you have different ones? Did all the cabbages get 
the same weediness. Yeah. Have you ever tried to grow a weed on purpose? Well, my field projects are all on growing a weed on purpose. So maybe, maybe you know this. Weeds are kind of hard to grow purposefully and consistently. So if you want to have a bunch of treatments of weed that are consistent, that's going to be really hard. What I did was I actually selected cover crops because these seeds are going to be more likely to germinate than a weed seed, which might just sit dormant. I selected a grass cover crop and a broadleaf. So a broadleaf is just any sort of leafy plant that's not a grass and not a tree. So I've overplanted them in, in the plots that they were going to be competing in. And then I let them grow for a little bit until they got like I don't know, a couple inches tall. And then I went out on my hands and knees and actually my mom came once and my sister-in-law came once to help me do this as well as some extension staff. But we took those overplanted sections and every square foot, we narrowed it down to only having five of each broadleaf and five of each grass so that we had a consistent covering, I guess, of competition. I let some of those weeds grow for two weeks, four weeks, six weeks. You know, so the taller that they got, the more they interfered with the red to far red signaling. And so that was a way to basically change the red to far red ratio in the field. You know, you'd think, well, why would we even care? Because you're going to take the weeds out of a field anyways and kind of get rid of this thing. Au contraire. <laughs> with organic farming, weeds are, I think, the number one sided issue. And at a certain point, like, you can't get it all out. The other thing is, you know, competition isn't just from weeds. Sometimes it's, it's even crop on crop competition. So how closely you plant things together. Intercrops are now a little bit more of a, a thing people are doing. So an intercrop is just a plant planted in between rows of maybe your main crop. The, the point is competition kind of exists in a lot of different ways. It's not just weeds. But that's how I set it up essentially is I, I made these kind of fake surrogate weed communities that I just made sure were completely consistent, which was honestly the probably the most labor intensive part of my project. <laughs> That sounds like maybe you needed a good massage after you had to crawl around and do that for a while. In retrospect, yeah, I think that would have been great. But I didn't get that added into my grant money, so I couldn't really write that off. And just to clarify, you planted these weed communities and then thinned them out. Did you already have your cabbage planted in those areas or did you plant the cabbage afterwards? So there's a couple of different ways that I did it. I looked at early competition. Those weed communities were planted with the cabbages right when they're starting. So as if the the weeds and the cabbages all grew at the same time. And then some of them I started later in the season. So the cabbages got a little bit bigger and then I started the weeds. Okay, so now that you have your weeds, now that you have your cabbage, what kind of data did you collect on this? How did you measure those red to far red ratios? So there's this little instrument called the spectro radiometer. And what I had was I had this little field unit, which was really handy, but it just connected to my computer. So I took my computer into the field and had this little detector plugged into my computer with a USB cord. And what it did was you'd point it in one direction. And let's say I was standing straight up. It's going to collect all of the irradiation directly from the sun, just coming straight down onto the plant. And then what gets translated into my computer is this data file that can be looked at like as a graph. And what you can see is from, say, wavelength, 380, which is close to blue, all the way up to wavelength 800, which is in the far red. And it tells you what the relative intensity was of all the different wavelengths in between. So you get a good idea of what the entire light quality was like in whatever direction you're pointing that little detector. The spectroradiometer was really handy. And what I did was just to get an idea of light quality in all different areas around the cabbage, I had it pointed in multiple different directions. So I'd get one where the light is coming directly down, light coming from the side, light bouncing off the soil. Those bottom leaves are going to detect a lot of the reflected light from the soil. The side leaves are going to get a lot of the shading from plants next to it. Those upper leaves are going to get a lot of uh, sunlight coming down. So joining all that information together and I could take an average kind of of what the, the light quality was like around one plant. So it sounds like from what you've told me, you would want 
more red light than far red light? You want a high ratio or do you other, want a low ratio? Other way around, yeah. You want a low ratio, okay. For, for one specific cultivar. Okay. So for just one specific cabbage, we want more far red light than red yes, light. correct. Okay, interesting. So what did you find in your study? Yeah, so I found greater amounts of competition also led to really low ratios of red to far red. So a lot of far red compared to red because that light is filtered. So more filtered light meant more glucobrassican. And I think maybe more astute listeners would be like, wait a second, wait a second. You're also changing so much more when you're all looking at competition. So that's absolutely true. But we were also able to do controlled growth environment studies. So the the research there backed up the same conclusions where lower red to far red ratios gave us higher glucobrassican in one specific cultivar. And then in another cultivar that I looked at, competition did not do absolutely anything to the plant. It just, it kept on making whatever glucobrassican it was going to make and went along with its life. Would that kind of variation between cultivars be pretty typical that you would have to do this study for every single cultivar you'd want to know this information about? Or is there another way to determine this? I think that's one way, right? We could we could look at all the cultivars. Another way is to get a good sampling of different cultivars. And then, you know, people who do genetic type studies might be able to find maybe a gene or a couple genes. You know, it would be really great if it was just one gene that controlled whether or not it was going to respond to retifarid ratio, which probably is not the case, but there might be some consistencies in the genetic background that then could help us predict which other cultivars would work well in the system, which ones would not. As researchers, we're often really interested in these kind of intricate questions. You're talking about light ratios, but as a farmer, you're really thinking about what is the yield of this? What am I getting from this production system, did you also measure how these cabbages did even under these competition scenarios? Yeah, so the main way producers get paid right now, right, is they get paid by pounds per acre, which is great because, you know, we need to make sure that we can produce enough food. So I, I did, I, you know, it's really important to collect that information. And so I collected yield, and as you would expect, those higher competition treatments reduced the yield to some degree. What we're trying to kind of gear our focus more towards is less that yield-focused production system, which is how can we get the biggest plant possible to, you know, which matters for a grower. And it is really important, but a consumer like you in the grocery store, you might be more concerned with per bite, how good is this food? Am I getting the absolute maximum nutrients that I possibly could get? Or, you know, is this product mostly just water? And so those are more the nutrient focused production systems where we're trying to kind of switch yield focus more into, you know, the yield of glucobrassican. And so both of those things are important, but yeah, they're, they're not competing production systems necessarily, but they are different goals, I guess. Are there any shifts happening from this yield-based production system to farmers getting paid a premium for cabbage that is more nutrient-dense than, I don't know, something more watery? Right, yeah. You can't really go to the grocery store and, and find broccoli that was produced under X production system and you get Y amount of whatever nutrient you're looking for. But I think there there's a lot of evidence out there that these could start gaining traction. One example is just people being really interested in um, health compounds. And so there is a broccoli, it's called Beneforte broccoli. Have you heard of that at all? I have not heard okay. of that. It's a little more expensive, but it has about twice the amount of glucoraphanin. And glucoraphanin is another one of these really healthy glucosinolates. There's evidence there that you know people will pay for it, that it matters to people. And then I think on the, the other side too, you know, organics is a really big market and 
a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people do purchase organics because they think that just the quality of the vegetable itself is superior to conventional and they're willing to pay more because of that. Whether that's true or not is actually... <laughs> Highly. That is a big debate. That's a very <laughs> controversial question to bring to the table here. It really is. It's a huge debate. And I, I think what the literature says is that we don't know. And we don't know because there's so much variation in production systems, whether it's conventional or organic. They have to be really tailored to whatever nutrient you're looking at. So all that to say, there isn't a production system value-added market for this sort of thing that I'm working on. But I think there's a lot of people that are willing to buy higher quality stuff at a higher price because it matters to them. So in in the future, if we have these high glucobrassican cabbages, would we see similar to the broccoli you were talking about earlier, would we see, you know, a cultivar specific section like we do for apples, you know, it's sectioned out by the different types of apples rather than when you buy a cabbage, you just pretty much you just pick a cabbage. Yeah. Just buy red or green. Maybe there's savoy in there. I think there's a lot of different ways that could be done. Um, you know, some, an example could just be these are the the plants that are above a hundred units of glucobrassican. You know, the, we we know that these are, and so this is our little glucobrassican section. And maybe that'd be a variety of like Brussels sprouts and different cabbages you know and then maybe there would be the lycopene section where these tomatoes make a ton of lycopene right you can you can kind of space it out by you know nutrient if that's the sort of thing or maybe maybe we do just have one cultivar that at that point in time is producing the most for whatever region that it's grown in and and the thing is it, it really depends on the environment too so these interactions aren't just light it, it could be light and heat and so maybe in california a certain cultivar is going to grow best under a certain type of production system, and in Maine, a different one will. But maybe they both make 100 units of glucobrassican, and so they could be sold together. But just because of the interlinkedness of our food system, there'd have to be a lot of thought put behind that, how you're going to set it up, and maybe every different market would be different. Yeah, there's a lot of ways. So if people do get their hands on any kind of brassica with some of these compounds in it, do you want people to eat more brassicas, you and the Masonic Cancer Center? Um, I think what would be great is if, you know, if people want to eat more cabbage and they like it, that's fantastic. But really, I think the coolest thing about this research is if people just even kept on eating the same amount of, you know, let's assume that they eat a decent amount of vegetables to begin with. But if they kept eating the same amount of vegetables, they're going to get double the, you know, or whatever the, you know, multiplication number is there of whatever nutrient we're looking for. And that could open up the door to maybe eat less of cabbage because you really hate it and maybe more, I don't know, kohlrabi because you really love that and it has other benefits. So I, I don't think necessarily I want people to eat more cabbage. I think what would be better is if we had higher quality cabbage, but not, you know, higher quality all vegetables, not just glucobrassican cabbage. These production systems could be any nutrient really. And so I think it's kind of the, the quality. That sounds awesome. Well, I will, I'll advocate for people eating more cabbage. But we have had such a wonderful conversation today. Ilsa, if people are interested in learning more about your research, is there anywhere they can go to hear about it or read about it or see it? Yeah, actually, a lot of times, I mean, I don't know where people you know are listening from, but a lot of times Extension has some really awesome field days. You can learn about research there or just even the Extension website. And if they're really nerdy, you know, you can always do a Google Scholar search of glucobrassican and cabbage and, and read up about it. But, you know, Extension is a really good place to, to find a lot of those resources. Perfect. Thank you. Well, a huge thank you again for sharing a bit about your research on the cabbages and the glucobrassican. I'm sure people are 
may be tired of hearing both of those words at this point, but I enjoyed it and I look forward to chatting with you again in the future maybe. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Welcome to the final fun fact of the episode, a place where you can share your favorite fun fact with me and I'll read it on the show. If you've been on social media in the past week or so, you may have seen this. A Twitter user named Kyle Plant Emoji tweeted that some people have an internal narrative and others don't. It turns out, psychologists have been researching this since the 1930s. If you're like me, your brain is talking to you all the time in a nonstop internal monologue. But researchers have noted that our internal speech is usually abbreviated and emits a lot of information. If this sounds like you, cool. But if that only happens to you some of the time, or not at all, that's normal too. If you'd like to share a fun fact for me to read on the episode, please email me at hookedonsciencepod at gmail.com with the subject line fun fact, and you may hear it on a future episode. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.